this the dagger? Illegal substitution, too many men on the field, Saskatchewan. Gizmo has a block and the sideline. He has not stepped out, he may go all the way. He needs one block and he'll do it easily. Promise mess I wouldn't do this. McDavid stops up, what a move, shoots, scores! Everybody, welcome to the Outsiders, brought to you by the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. My name is Bryn Griffiths. He is Robin Brownlee, and we've got a very special guest today. Pumped up about this one. It's funny; it didn't really dawn on me until it was brought up by Wayne Gretzky in a conversation that I had. This goes back in 1999. We started talking about Barry Stafford, and Wayne gently paused, as he could do. And said, you know, he's the most decorated of all the Edmonton Oilers. He's won more championships than anybody else. That's more than Slats, more than me, more than Mess, more than... And you start looking at your your resume, Barry Stafford. And I guess a lot of people probably don't know that. Uh, are you humbled? Are you embarrassed? Are you flattered? When you hear that. Um, you know, I... <laughs> I mean, you have to, you have to keep everything in perspective, um, you know, obviously, and, and thanks to Wayne and, you know, for doing that. But, um, you know, I was a very lucky guy. I was a fortunate guy. I came along at a great time. Um, you know, I, I, I was on a lot of championship teams. I mean, uh, just, just in the Oilers alone, I mean, we had five cups. But, you know, I was fortunate to come along at a time when I was included in, in, the, in the back in the good old days starting in 84, 84, 91, uh, 84, 87, 91 Canada cups. I was on, you know, I, I, I got to see some of the best hockey that ever was played, um, internationally as well. I was eight on eight, uh, I think international championship teams, um, representing Canada, uh, you know, with, with the Oilers. And it was because of the Oilers that I was there and, you know, and my, my illustrious playing career, I, I, I never did, you know, I never coached or played in the NHL, but fortunate to be part of uh, the Golden Bear hockey program under Claire Drake. And, you know, we won three championships uh, when I was a player and as a fringe player, but a, a, a contributing player. And, uh, you know, before that, I played on a minor league pro team of all places, Amarillo, Texas, uh, when I was a young guy, 18 years old. And we won the Southwest Hockey League Championship. So, you know, I don't know if you want to count those, but professionally as a trainer on a, on a lot of great teams, I was very fortunate to be on a lot of winning teams. Well, it's funny how fortunate people who are really good at what they do become. Uh, yeah. luck, luck seems to go with, uh, with uh, hard work and uh, making a contribution, though, don't you think? Well, you know, I... I have to give a lot of credit, obviously, to my parents, my dad, um, you know, for the perseverance that I had and all the ups and downs that y you go through. But uh, Glenn Stather as well and that that group of players were, even though teammates, <clears throat> mentors of mine and, uh, you know, also the, the great tutelage and the great program of the Golden Bear Hockey Program under Claire Drake. I, 
I learned, I might not have been a hockey player, but I learned how to, how to, how the game should be played through Claire Drake. And then of course, mm-hmm. you know, I was just, even though I was a behind the scenes guy or support group guy, I mean, I, I was part of, you know, hockey history, just, just watching and learning through osmosis on that, uh, you know, during the dynasty years. So, um, you know, I, I learned about and followed the footsteps of Glenn, who was, you know, his career was basically hard work, dedication. He was a shit disturber. And unfortunately, I wish he had been a 50 goal scorer and maybe I would have been a better player. But, you know, Glenn Sather <laughs> taught us all about about those kind of things. And, you know, there's no harder working players than Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Paul Coffey, Glenn Anderson, like you name it. All those all those guys, Charlie, Randy Gregg, um, you know, I, Patty Hughes, I, I think about any one of those guys um, that, you know, you, you don't get anywhere in life, not just hockey, but in life without working hard. And and I was fortunate to be mentored by a lot of great people. One of the things I remember Slats saying is, I don't care if you're a 50 goal scorer or a five goal scorer, show me some backbone, show me some heart. And I think that that's about as well summed up as, as I could ever imagine anything. That's exa- That's all you want from a teammate is show me some backbone and show me some heart, Staffy. Right right from the back room where you were doing all that stuff behind the scenes to the players who played out on the ice. That's all you want. Am I wrong? Yeah, you, you, you know, you're, you want to say old school. I, I talked to Paul quite a bit, and, you know, Paul's doing a little bit of work with the team, and he's been very successful uh, in business and with his family and, and whatever. And I, I think Paul Coffey is probably the most old school hockey person that you'll meet he's he's a he's a diehard oiler um and he's a very dedicated person and and uh you know he speaks his mind and and one of the things about paul uh is that you you'd ask him about the influence that glenn had on him or you ask wayne or you ask mark um you know glenn sather had a huge influence on all of us and obviously everybody grows through that and you you grow into your own person and onto your own very successful as as those guys have career I'm just an old retired bastard now, but but those guys have, have gone on to be iconic players in the game. And Glenn had a huge influence on us. And, you know, one day we could sit and talk over a couple of a wee drams about uh, the influence that Glenn had on me personally, but on all of us. And he he was the patriarch to, um, to a dynasty and, you know, had a huge influence along with Ted Green, John Muckler, of course. Uh, but, you know, I, like I said, I... I I don't want to be a broken record, but I was a very lucky guy to come along at a good time. We uh, we lost another legend in the past week here in the province of Alberta, a guy that you know really well, a guy who was in the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame, the Hockey Hall of Fame, Jim Bearcat Murray with the Calgary Flames. Lots of battles of Alberta. What do you remember about Bearcat? Because I, I spent a year and a half, almost two years in Calgary. He treated me like gold. I have nothing but great things to say. I always dropped in to make sure I was doing okay. How you settling in, kid? But man, oh man, what a guy, huh? Boy, I, I was so sad, so sad to hear, and it brought back so many great, great memories of Bearcat Murray. And, I mean, you know, I, I would say in the training business, he was uh, he was a mentor of mine. I started out as a young guy, in, you know, eighty three, eighty four type thing. Uh, wet behind the ears, didn't have a clue, and and. Uh, I had a, a history, a long history with Bearcat and his family you know, before I started with the Oilers, which kind of uh, gave me a step forward. But, uh, you know, he's a funny little story. My dad, you know, I grew up in Banff. My dad was a, a hockey player, played senior hockey in the, in the 
I guess, Bull Valley area. Uh, we used to, you know, he used to play um, against Calgary teams and Canmore teams and, you know, those kind of teams. But when we were kids, we would go, he would take us to ba- to Calgary, which was our home city, so to speak. And on our way back, we would stop in Okotoks, Alberta. And I'm just a young guy. I don't even know where Okotoks is. And he said, we have to go to Mr. Murray's. So we stop at this small little residence. In the back, there was an old granary that he had turned transformed into a skate sharpening shop. And my dad at the time was probably in his, you know, he was 30 to 40 years old playing senior hockey, getting his skate sharpened by Mr. Murray, which was Bear's dad. <laughs> so Bearcat was, was a trainer at that time for the Calgary Centennials. Uh, Bearcat's brother Norman lived in Banff and played on the senior hockey team as well. So I grew up uh, knowing the, 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 the uh, Murray family as a young guy. As a matter of fact, Annabelle Murray was Bearcat's sister. My dad used to compete against Annabelle Murray uh, in South Central Zones in track and field when they were kids. So I had a history. So when I met Bearcat, and I, long before I started working in the NHL, you know, we were instant friends. And when I joined the NHL, he was the happiest guy in the world for me and uh, very, very welcoming as he was with anybody. I'll tell you what, that guy had charisma. That guy was a character. He's the only one in the NHL as a trainer who had his own freaking fan club. I mean, we, we need more guys like Bearcat Murray in this world. Was he not on for a goal for, or was it a goal against? Do you know that story? Well, I, I seem to remember it was in L.A. And if, if for the listeners that remember Bear, I mean, yeah, I mean, trainers are behind the scenes, guys. So we're never front and center. We like to be behind the scenes. But, you know, when somebody gets hurt, like who's the first guy they look for in the NHL? They look for the trainer. I mean, he's the. You know, Kenny Lowe, Peter Miller and our team, uh, which I'd like to talk about Peter a little bit. He's going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. But, uh, you know, Bearcat Murray was a Hockey Hall of Famer. He, 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 um, he was the first medical trainer that had cleats in his shoes. Yeah. So he would, and he was very fit. That guy was fit, man. He would bound, he would jump over the boards when someone got hurt and he would run uh, onto the ice, uh, you know, to get there to help with uh, whatever whatever uh, needed to be done, whether a guy got his teeth knocked out or knees blown out or whatever the hell it was. Those medical trainers are, are amazing people. Um, but it was against the LA Kings, I believe, and there was a, a delayed penalty called. One of his, I think his goalie got hurt. Uh, it might have been Mike Vernon. Bearcat Murray jumps over the ice while there was a delayed penalty. So the play was going on. So, so the play's going on. He jumps out on the ice and he's running out to the to the um, uh, goal crease where where uh, Vernon is down, and I do believe that the that the Flames might have scored, and so he's the only you know medical trainer in the NHL that actually gets an assist or or a plus because he was on the ice when a goal was scored. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, you know it's funny Bear, Barry that you'd mentioned the shoes. Before I got here, because I didn't, I missed some of that fun, the BOA fun. I got here in 89 for the last cup, but uh, I used to wonder how the hell does this guy vault the boards or come racing out through the gate like that and get to where he's going so fast without wiping out and falling on his ass? Because guy, you'd see guys shuffling out there as fast as they could, but they look like penguins. Bearcat would be vaulting out towards the player, and he was always sure-footed. And I found it funny 
when I, I finally saw that with his shoes, the other thing, when I finally got to be in the same rink with him, uh, was as businesslike as he was and as good as he was at his job, he was always quick, uh, to strike up a conversation and, and to, and, uh, to smile and say, how's it going to the people around the rink? I always noticed that about him. Well, you hit the nail on the head, Robin. I mean, in that, in that regard, Bearcat Murray was a personality, you know, he was old as old school as they come. He was congenial. He was always happy and smiling and always welcoming. I mean, he had a special personality and, and yeah. to the man uh, through the eighties and most of the players that I'm sure all the players that were on teams with Bearcat would say the same thing. I mean, he's a very, very close friend to Lanny. I, I sent a text to Lanny the other day. I, I, I mean, Lanny and Bearcat were very close. Um, Paplinski and some of the stars of the game in, in the Flames organization were close to, really close to Bearcat. And, you know, he was a, he was a mentor to a lot of young NHL trainers. Um, you know, another funny part about Bear is that uh, he was extremely fit. Um, what, maybe the only guy or one of a few, uh, during practice, instead of standing on the bench and, and, uh, you know, of, of course, observing to make sure that nobody got hurt or he was there. If somebody did get hurt, Bearcat Murray would be sitting on a, a stationary bicycle on the bench area, working out as the players were practicing. So, you know, he was very, very, uh, in, he used a lot of ingenuity for his, for his training and his time and, uh. You know, he was ahead of his time. The, the guy, they say he was self-taught, but I'll tell you what, he had more training behind the scenes. He may not have had a degree, um, which obviously, you know, can't, is, is important today. Um, but, but he took a lot, a lot of courses behind the scenes, and he was always studying, always learning, and getting a certification uh, the old school way. But he was a very knowledgeable, uh, very, very credible professional. And, uh yeah, it's, it was a sad day. To, 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 and, he, and he wrote a book, too. I just heard that he had written a book, which I can hardly wait to read. But uh, just a special human being and, and representing the Flames organization very, very well. Hey, can we talk about the back hallway? Because we all have our own little memories and our stories of the back hallway that people don't know about. And let's even go, let's go back to the Coliseum days, first and foremost, because that's where I recognize there was a back hallway. So many times visiting players or training staff or whatever, some of the visiting media, we would come down that back hallway. There were a lot of fun things to do back in that hallway. The biggest thing was to shoot the shit with guys. I so often used to laugh that your door was always open and there would be a visiting trainer or maybe a visiting player that you'd worked with on a Team Canada. Right next to your doorway, there was another small room, which I, I refer to that as Sparky's room. And uh, Sparky's room always had, well, you weren't supposed to smoke in the old building, but uh, Robin, do you want to jump in on this part? I know you visited that room on a few occasions to make sure nobody was. Who, who, who smoked in the old building? Who? No, never, nobody, nobody. Yeah, did. I, I never saw that. But Staffy, that hallway that you, there was always going to be somebody making an appearance in the back room in the Oilers locker room from the visiting team. And everybody wants to think, the visiting team comes in that way, the home team comes in that way, and they never, ever meet up. Your little area there was always a hub of activity. Well, there's a couple of unwritten rules in in professional sports, and one is 
never fraternized with the enemy, of course. I mean, the Battle of Alberta. On the ice, the players and everybody, coaches at some extent, hated each other. But I'll tell you what, the back hallway was a big part of the camaraderie and 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 probably the part that I miss the most about the, the business is the, whether, whether you were a former player um, that played for the Oilers and were traded um, or, or potentially a player that, that we worked with on other teams. I mean, we, we, you know, our, our training staff worked with lots of players in, in those Canada cup tournaments and, you know, the best players in the game um, that back hallway, it's funny you mentioned that. So, um, you know, it's one of the unwritten rules about not fraternizing with the enemy. The one thing that we always, that I learned from a young age and uh, I didn't want to keep it from, from executive or from the coaches. Uh, they kind of knew what was going on, but behind the scenes, trainers work together uh, from one team to the next. And uh, you know, we're all only human people forget things, trainers forget things and you don't want to make it public, but you know, I'd get knocks on my door saying, Hey, have you got any left sticks live five? Uh, you know, this guy forgot his sticks or I forgot his sticks. And I'd open the door. This is early in the morning, of course, when no one was around. I'd say, go in the stick room and find, take whatever you need, man. Like the show must go on. A guy would forget a helmet or a helmet would break or equipment would break. And we had a very open door policy behind the scenes, of course, to help our trainers because, you know, what goes around comes around. I'd be in Florida or Texas or New York or somewhere. And I'd be without something. And, you know, the trainers on the other team would be the same way, you know, come on in, sneak in behind before any of the coaches or anybody gets there, do whatever you need. And we were very welcoming that way. And, and it, not only with the training staff, of course, it had to be that way, but you know, you would get players, as you said, would come down the hallway to see Joey, of course, to yeah. see Sparky. Um, and, uh, and staffy. Well, you know, we, we always had a great relationship, but, you know, I like, like to say, and I was very proud of the, you know, the relationship that I had with all the players and, um, you know, because I was on so many winning teams, I mean, there's always a common thread when you win, uh, you know, like some of the greatest players in that era, uh, even, even, you know, the flames players, Theron, Theron Fleury, uh, Jerome McGinley, you know, some of these guys were very good friends of mine from, you know, Al McGinnis, um, from those team Canada's you think about, you know, we, we talked about uh, killer, like uh, Dougie Gilmore, uh, Dougie Risebro. These guys were, were, were the enemy on the, on the flames team, but behind the scenes, we're all very close friends. Lanny McDonald was a friend of mine since I was 15 years old. He used to work at the Glen Sather holiday hockey school. And uh, he was actually our bus driver. Lanny was, but so, I mean, it, it's the backstory, the back hallway, uh, the relationships, uh, of players, trainers, staff, uh, to me, that is very intriguing to see how, how all these relationships uh, have developed. And to me, when people ask me, what do I miss about that business is I miss, I miss the, the people. I don't think there's any better, better sport than hockey or uh, better people than hockey people, players, coaches, managers, trainers. You know, it's funny, Barry, and it's a bit different for me than for you because I was an outsider. A guy who covers the team isn't the same as a guy who is with the team uh, in, in your capacity. But I used to love the trips down there, whether it was to go have a chat with Ronnie Lowe, uh, whether it was to uh, 
uh, go with Sparky. Sparky and I, we had cheat places in every building in the National Hockey League. (laughs) You'd go into Tampa, and I don't recall his name, but their equipment guy, they called him Pick. Um, Jim Pickard. Jim Pickard is a legend. A legend in the four Stanley Cups with the Islanders. We'd we'd sit around in there, and, you know, it was wonderful. Or Pat Quinn would say, we'd duck into a room, and again, bad habit, but he says, oh, I got to have one before I before I answer the questions. And I'd say, well, I got to have one before I ask them. So we'd go into yeah. duck into an, into one of the rooms down near the entrance to your room. Um, that's where all the that's where all the good conversation was. And that's where all the good information was from my end of things. Well, you know, I will say that uh, I remember years ago. Uh, at, at our conferences, we would have, you know, special guests come in like this, this NHL conference is going to be in Florida. There's 600 people, all the vendors go, uh, all the trainers from all, you know, medical and equipment from all over the, the all, every league is there. And uh, we used to have, I remember one time we had the NHL referees, uh, Terry Greg, Gregson was the president of the refs association and we'd have special guest speakers. And um, so um we we always got along very well with the referees and and the, the the one thing that terry gregson said that stuck with me and this is going back a long time is the way that the nhl looked at referees is that they are an evil necessity hmm. and it's because you know they're paid by the league um there there's always controversy with refereeing and but but you can't have the games without them and we we always laugh because the training staff are very similar to that you know you can't play games without the trainers you can you know like you can you can bitch and complain and you got to pay these guys and you know do they do a good job or not a good job but the fact is you cannot have a game without the trainers the behind the scenes people not that we ever you know took that too seriously or not but i will say we had a very good relationship with the media very similar to what we did with the referees yeah typically we're we are on the corporate ladder, the low end, which is, you know, that's the way it is. We, we understand our, our structure in the corporate world, but most media guys and most trainers were paid very, you know, very similar. We had, you know, similar schedules. We had similar hours and uh, most of us always, you know, we accepted our position in the, in the world. And, but there was a great relationship between media you guys, of course, Robin and 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 Bryn, and I think about Maddie and God rest his well, not God rest his soul, but unfortunately, what happened to, to Jonesy the other day? But like jo- Jonesy and Maddie and um, you know the guys that were around in the early days. When you think about Brian Hall and of course you guys, because you were part of the team. But but we always had a great relationship with the media as well, because we always could kind of relate to each other. You know what, Barry? It's funny you mentioned the difference and the the totem pole. I laugh because one of the pictures that I saved from the road, I bring. I brought a camera with me on the road even before everybody had a camera in their phone. Um, is told in one in one photo in in Times Square. There's you and Maddie and me, and we're all peering into a. Uh, one of the street guys has his jacket open. Yeah. And all the fake Rolex watches. <laughs> the, the our end of the totem pole buys the fake Rolex watches <laughs> in Times Square, and the other end of the totem pole buys the real ones. There's your difference. 
<laughs> well, you know, that, that is a funny little story and it's so true. I, I, I almost, I can remember the hanging out with you guys on the road. Of course, uh, we would eat at the same restaurants. The trainers would run into the media. Typically we'd always have our media meal. The trainers would sneak into the media meal because we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't get a chance to get out and eat usually. Um, whereas the, 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 not that we didn't mingle with the, with the players on the road. Of course we did. They were, they were great to us, but, um, you know, behind the scenes, we'd be working longer hours. We'd be there quite a bit earlier. You guys would be there earlier. We'd be there later. You guys would be there doing your stories later. Um, so it wouldn't be uncommon for us to go have a beer with the, with the, with the local beat guys on, on the road. Um, but I do remember New York city with, with those, uh, with, with you and Maddie at, that, so that was a big deal for us. You could buy a Rolex watch for 20 bucks or something. And everybody bought two or three and brought them home and gave them to their friends and family. And yep. the things would the things would conk out after about six months, but it was a fun, fun experience doing that. Hey, just back to the uh, back hallway for a second. The other thing that I always used to laugh at was how many times did you have to sharpen a pair of skates for officials? Did you oh do my that very much? I, I could tell you some funny stories if, if we had some time here about not so much. Well, yeah, the officials. We do have course, time. But yeah. Well, the officials were one thing. And, and yeah, you know, we, like I said, we had a great relationship with the officials because they're no different than, than us in the sense, but they're independent contractors. They would travel on their own with their own bags. There is more than one occasion where a trainer, uh, one of the, one of the uh, refs or linesmen would be knocking on the door early in the morning saying, Barry, the airlines lost my bag. I don't have skates. I don't have pants. I don't have a Jersey. I don't have anything. And, uh, you know, so it, it, over the years, the NHL would, would, uh, send us a package. Each team would get a package with two or three pairs of ref pants, two or three uh, ref sweaters, different sizes. But the biggest thing, and I can tell you one funny story, uh, uh, with Carrie Fraser, the biggest thing is, is the skates, of course, right? Because most of these guys were well, all of them are great skaters, and um, a lot of them are actually good hockey players too. But um, so one day, one morning, and it was was wasn't uncommon for us to sharpen the the, the the official skates. I mean, they would just knock on the door and politely ask, and we were happy to help them. Um, and we would do that quite regularly. Um, but one time, I got a knock on the door from Kerry Fraser, who was you know undoubtedly uh, you know arguably one of the best in the business. Of course, he's a, he's a character, but. Um, this was years ago. So he knocks on the door and he's very, you know, quiet and sheepish. He goes, Barry, I don't have anything. Can you help me out? So I got him a pair. We, we threw our network in Edmonton. We got him a pair of uh, black referee pants. He got his, his uh, sweater, but I didn't, I, he's got size freaking five feet. He's got really small feet. He's a small guy. So I had to try and find a pair of skates for him. Well, I found a pair of used skates. All good. And, and, uh, <laughs> And, and I sharpened them up and I got them ready. He tried them on. There was nobody in the room. He, he said the skates fit well. He went out and skated after practice in the morning to, to give them a quick tw a twirl just to feel comfortable. But I don't care if you're a, a hockey player or, or an official, on-ice official. Your skates are the most important part of your equipment, bar none. Bar none. And you know how hockey players are very, very particular. Not some Well, skate sharpening is an important thing, but the fit... Um, and the security and the comfort of your skates are are, 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 are are prominent. That's the biggest thing. Well, this poor guy, I'll never forget. Um, I sharpened his skates, got him through practice, never heard boo from the guy, got the equipment. Well, the very first shift, I'm, I'm out, the game starts. 
the poor guy could hardly freaking skate. Like he was just so uneasy on his feet. He was hanging onto the boards. He couldn't skate across the ice. And I was, I mean, I was pissing myself laughing. It was, <laughs> I felt for him. Yeah. I felt terrible for him. There's 18,000 people in the building and all the players are watching him. And, and he just didn't feel secure on his feet, but I'll tell you what, it was freaking funnier in hell. And, um, <laughs> you know, that was just one of the little funny stories. He got through the game. All right. And everything went well, but, uh, it wasn't uncommon for us to look after the officials as well. We talk so often about how you guys do things behind the scenes. We've got two teams in the Stanley Cup final, the Tampa Bay Lightning, who are a great hockey club. However, they're just getting absolutely manhandled by another great hockey team in the Colorado Avalanche. You don't see anything. The training staff, I know, are working so seamlessly, so quietly behind the scenes that all the guys have to do is worry about going out and playing hockey. you got to... You, you know that you've been there, done that, and you recognize the great job that they're doing behind the scenes to make it so it's flawless for the players. Am I correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I did mention that, you know, the unwritten rule was to be very helpful throughout the regular season. That That is, I'll be real clear there, throughout the regular season. Yeah. Once playoff starts, it's a different ball game, and especially in the, during the final. Like, uh, you don't want to be anywhere near the other team team um professionally you don't want to get yourself in any kind of compromising position i mean we're all very very competitive people and um you know i don't really care what happens to the other team if they need help uh you know it's pretty hard it's pretty difficult to um you know to want to, to help the other team and for a lot of reasons if anybody ever found out <laughs> and the, yeah. and you lost you know that would that would cause some problems but respectfully and professionally uh, we just sort of stayed away from each other. We're still very helpful in, in a certain way, but, uh, you know, people don't understand. Um, and, and, you know, the game is all about the players, of course. I mean, that's what it's about. But behind the scenes, there is so many things that go on, as you guys know. And uh, trainers are always there. Equipment managers are always there to solve problems. We're, 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 we're problem solvers and uh, or, or challenge solvers, you know. We're not there to create problems. And if there's any time a trainer ever gets involved in something like that, there's trouble. And, and so, you know, we're very discreet. We, we work hard behind the scenes. We're there for the players. We're there for the coaches. Um, uh, it, it, you know, you work, they talk about long hours. We can hardly wait to go to work at four or five o'clock in the morning on a game day. And in, 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 uh, when you're in the Stanley Cup final, you're just so excited. There's so much electricity and uh, it's so exciting. Um, you know, you don't think about the, the long hours and, and the lack of sleep. It's just an exciting time of the year. But, uh, um, yeah, those guys, I, I, I like to watch the last game of the year the when they present the Stanley Cup. And I'll sit there because I'm so excited for the players. It just brings back so many great memories. Um, but especially I wait right to the very end because, you know what, at the very end of the presentation when they pass that cup around, the training staff are waiting very patiently for their turn at it too. And, you know, the, the players and, and, and staff are very respectful of the fact that they're part of the team and you know what, they get their day with the cup and they get their pictures with the cup. And it's so exciting for those young players, those young trainers as well and trainers. So I, I look forward to, to the presentation of the Stanley cup because I was very fortunate to be part of a lot of those championship um, times. Do you remember that very first time it was handed off to you? Do you remember what was going through your mind as you grabbed that cup and you started to hoist it over your head because you were a champion too? Do you remember that? Or was it a total blur? Uh, 
you know what, Brig, you never forget that. I mean, I was like every other young young kid in Canada wanting to be, uh, you know, a hockey player and win the Stanley Cup as a young guy growing up. But um, you, you'll never forget that. I remember it was May 19th, 1984. I was standing on that little corner of the bench that I was, you know, fortunate in my second year in the NHL. The first year we got beat four straight. The yeah. second year in the NHL, we win the Stanley Cup. It's like, holy shit. I, I think I'll never forget looking at that clock, watching that countdown. And I, I will say, you know, to answer your question, no, it changed my life. Uh, it, it did. It did have a huge impact on me personally and, and, uh, and on my life. And, uh, you know, behind the scenes, once again, I, I, you know, you're just so darn excited about what's going on. And it wasn't until, um, you know, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour, two hours later, we're in the dressing room. Um, you're trying to control your, your excitement. You're obviously happy and excited, but when everybody's gone, the Stanley cup is sitting in the dressing room and there's trainers, Peter Miller, myself, Sparky, some of the mess. And I think Gretz and a few of the guys, but I grabbed that cup and I took that cup over my head. Couldn't believe how heavy the damn thing was, but, and, and it's funny. I found a picture that somebody had taken years ago and son of a bitch. If, uh, I forgot all about it, but I'm standing with the Stanley cup over my head and it, it's, you know, it's, it's something behind the scenes we keep. And uh, it was just, uh, it, it's something you'll never forget as a, as a guy like me. And I mean, shit, I was so bloody lucky when you think about it. We did that five freaking times, man. And uh, so, so many great memories. But the first one, especially for me as a staff member, um, yeah, I changed my life, really. Well, there's no, I mean, even as an observer, it's not hard to tell that there is no other championship as difficult as the Stanley Cup to win. Uh, what you have to go through, uh, the marathon of bumps and bruises and wins and losses and ups and downs. The impressive thing about what you just said for me, Barry, is that May 19th, 1984, to have the damn thing over with by May 19th. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Look at that last time in Raleigh. We were flying out of Raleigh on June 20th after game seven. I mean, by my count, that's a full extra month. That's a that's a big chunk of hockey right there. So you guys got it done uh, good and quick, relatively speaking. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that seems so long ago <clears throat> and a different lifetime for me, but... Uh... <laughs> Hey, you know, the, the one thing I do notice and, and remember, but besides the Canada Cups, we mentioned those a little bit earlier, but in 84, when you think back about the workload and the, and the time and the excitement that happened, it all sort of happened in a 10-year period. But, um, you know, we won the Stanley Cup. Uh, next thing you know, we're in training camp for the 1984 Canada Cup tournament. And we have the best players in the game, including some of the funny controversy that happened. And that's another podcast, but between the Islanders and the Oilers. And, and, you know, we had seven players from the Oilers team from that, that 84 cup team play mm -hmm. on the 84 Canada cup. A lot of people forget about those Canada cups. I mean, you think back to the 87 Canada cup that, that arguably was maybe, a, maybe opposed to a, the 72 series. A lot of people will agree. That was the greatest hockey that was ever played. I mean, mm -hmm. I was, I had the best seat in the house for all that. I was sitting on the bench for that. But my point is that, you know, we had a few few weeks, maybe a month off, and boom, we're right into training camp because the Canada Cup started in the summer. Yeah. 
And then we went, we would go right through the Canada cup tournament, right into tra uh, training camp into the regular season. And then boom, well, we did that so many times. So back in those days, the schedule seemed to be a little tighter. And of course with COVID and all the, all the problems and challenges that we went through or the league went through, um, you know, we're so happy to be back in, in, you know, some a semblance of order, but it does seem like the NHL is, is playing later into the year now for sure. Hey, before we let you go, Peter Miller going into the hockey hall of fame, uh, was here through the eighties, through those, uh, glory years. When Wayne goes to Los Angeles, he goes to Los Angeles. Were you ever asked to go to LA? Would you, would you have ever been approached out of respect? I, I I've never asked you that question. You know, that's a funny question. I, I, I think in order to understand the complexities of that group, I mean, I, one, one of the reasons I was fortunate is we were all the same age. Right. I was the same age as those guys. You know, I came from a different world. Like I, I got thrown into the fire with, you know, the arguably the best team in hockey um, and, and strong, strong relationships. And those guys treated the training staff as part of the team, which you know, they potentially do that today, but back then it was a tight group. It was a very tight group of people. And uh, we were all very good friends. And, you know, one of the, as the Stanley cup championship, my first one was, was one of the best memories of my life in the, in my professional life. The day that we got the news, and I don't need to get into the details of the Wayne Gretzky thing, but that was freaking devastating for all of us on that team. Right. Um, that, that was devastating. And, to answer your question, I, you know, Wayne, Wayne was very, very respectful as most of the players were almost all of, of our training staff and the support that we gave him. And he was very dependent on us. And even though he's one of the easier guys in the league in, in the game to work with, there was no doubt. He was a very, very easy person to work with. Um, but he was dependent on, and, and his family and his close friends. And, um, I did get a phone call, you know, a few days after the trade was announced. And I remember sitting in my kitchen table um, with my sister-in-law, my brother, Alan was there and the phone rang and Michelle at the time answered the phone. And, and she said, Barry, there's some guy on the phone here that says it's Wayne Gretzky. I go, well, it is Wayne Gretzky. Probably is. <laughs> she goes, oh, I, I thought, I, I thought it wasn't, you know, anyway, it was pretty funny. So I, you know, I did get the call. I, I was flattered. Um, but um, that's just the kind of guy Wayne is, though. He, he likes to be around his closest friends, his family, his support group. And I, I just, at the time, I, I couldn't leave. It didn't feel right. Um, and, and he did ask Peter, and uh, Peter was ready to make a change. Actually, Peter resigned his, his job with the Oilers. So it was a perfect fit because Peter and Wayne were very close friends. Peter was way more, it was a very capable uh, professional uh, trainer and uh you know, he went down with, with um, Wayne and they worked together for 17 years. He was Wayne. I think Peter was 15 years with us, 14 and then 17 years with the Kings. And uh, Peter Miller is going into the hockey hall of fame under the trainers category this year. Uh, um, and it's, it's an, it's an honor for him and his family. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go down there with Kenny Lowe to, to represent the Oilers organization and uh, as a personal friend and colleague. Thanks for your time today. Uh, rest in peace, Bearcat. We miss you. Uh, you were uh, one in a million. Man, I'll tell you what. What a special guy. And good luck to Peter going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Thanks for your time. Always great chatting. 
Yeah, it's a pleasure, and, and I, I always enjoy spending time with you guys, and thanks for asking me. Well, we're slowly moving into the summer months, and like any good teammate, the realtors over at the Macintosh Group will assist you in selling your home. Now, here's the goal. To sell your home for the most amount of money in the least amount of time with little to no stress. Wayne Gretzky was no stranger to breaking and setting records. Well, the Edmonton single-family real estate market breaking records to kick things off here in 2022 slows down a little bit as we get into the summer, but that's no big deal. But it does tell you one thing. It's so important to hire a professional with the skills to work in the ever-changing market that we're living in. Now, if you're looking for a Hall of Fame experience when selling your home, then give Brent or anybody at the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City a call at 780-464-0075, or you can find them online at mackintoshgroup.ca. Both buyers and sellers, give them a shout. They'll be able to tell you exactly how the market is going. And one last thing, when you give them a shout, make sure you tell them the outsiders sent you. Wow, that was uh, great stuff with Barry Stafford today. I really enjoyed that. It, I can't begin to tell you the great memories I have about the back hallway. I used to have a million laughs back there with guys. And we talk about Sparky's room where he could have the odd dart quietly away from the scenes. But the thing that I always was laughing about was that way back on the old Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was hosting and Bob Hope would suddenly walk on and you go, wow, oh, that's amazing. Just walking out, even though it was probably well, well set up in advance. But that back hallway, there was always a, wow, look who just walked in or what there was. The doorway was always open and somebody from the visiting team who maybe had an Oiler connection, even didn't just wanted to come down and say, hi, I was always astounded. And the, and the other thing I was, I remember this is when uh, Wayne was playing with the Rangers the last year. And I was telling Staffy and Sparky, I- I'd like to get something signed by Wayne. Yeah. Oh, well, that's not going to be that hard. I said, well, you know, I know he's coming in for his, what could be his last game. And they said, well, he's going to drop by the back room in the back hallway for a beer because Staffy will always have a nice cold one. They're ready and they can sit down and shoot the shit and relax away from the public glare. I don't even know if I should be telling this story, but I am. And so Wayne would come in and he would have the cold one there. Joey would even be there enjoying and uh-huh. Wayne would just go around. They'd be talking and, and there would be a bunch of stuff there that the guys would have gotten for charitable causes in the Edmonton area. And you could just kind of throw your Jersey down and Wayne would just sign it. It was as simple as that. But that was the magic of that back hallway. That was fun. That was fun time. So I'm glad we talked about that today. Yeah, I I agree. And you know what? There was a back hallway in every rink. And, oh, yeah. Uh, it's funny. It was so well known by the people that were around all the time that sometimes it was just a nod of the head. And you meant that meant, oh, okay, I'll meet you yes. down there, down there in five minutes. Or or somebody would say, five minutes. 10 minutes and in five minutes or 10 minutes, you were meeting them in the hallway. Yeah. They didn't have to say, I'll meet you in the hallway in 10 minutes. They just say 10, 10 minutes. minutes. So it was the language. And that was with coaches and reporters. I love best chats with the, in that building for me were uh, Pat Quinn, even when he, before he came to coach the Oilers back in the days when he was with Toronto, uh, I, 
Ronnie Lowe, the players, uh, Denny, so <laughs> Denny Savard asking if he could bum a smoke off me <laughs> to go into the, to go into the into what became the the uh, photographer's room. Um, yeah, it, it was a little bit more old school back then, and it was a lot of fun and uh, part of the camaraderie. I'm glad sure. we were able to bring up the back hallway because you're right; there always was one, and away from the public view and the glare and it was just it was a place where you could just be real and it was it was a blast so thanks to uh, staffy for coming on I, yeah. I don't know if sparky will ever speak to me again yes of course he will uh <laughs> the other thing too have you seen any of the stanley cup final yeah you know what a little bit of it but my interest is pretty much waned to the point where the highlights will do is that because of what i would now say the re- u.s regionalism has spread to canada it used to be when the American team was out, if you were a Chicago Blackhawk fan and they were out, that was it. It was over for you. Nobody yeah. watched anything. And in Canada, we always seem to still watch the playoffs and we all watch the Stanley Cup final. But uh, I've noticed more and more every year now that there's this regionalism in Canada that once your team is out, you have checked out. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact the season is running longer. And if the weather's nicer, okay, I could watch the playoff game. My team's not involved or I can go golfing. Or maybe I'll go out to the lake today or something. I, I think we've disu- discovered that winter is long enough in Canada yeah. that we want to take advantage of it, maybe spend more time with the family or your better half, whatever. But if you, uh, all you know, I know is this. If you didn't watch the first two games of the Stanley Cup final, you better hurry because this thing's going to be over in a big hurry. Although I do have a lot of confidence in the Tampa Bay Lightning, but they were absolutely surgically dissected by the Colorado Avalanche, who look like they're a team on a mission. 7 nothing well, in Game 2. I, I tell you, I was going to mention to Staffy when he was telling some of his stories, I said, the only, the only hope for the Tampa Bay Lightning now is if their training staff can somehow get a hold of the Avalanche skates and put, a, and <laughs> yeah. put, put their own special grind on those skates because right now uh, – I mean, I picked Tampa in six, and it's not over yet. But I tell you what, that was that was a pretty uh, strong statement in that last game. And you know what, Colorado's waited. Colorado's been a really good hockey club for uh, you know three, four years now, and uh, they're ready to win. Obviously, yeah. Uh, before we uh, talk a little football here, let's talk about our friend Terry Jones. Yeah. Wow, TJ. Uh, okay, so this is a little personal message because I know he listens to our podcast. Every once in a while, I get a note from him. I was listening to your podcast today. Uh, a couple of things. One, as a radio reporter, you can address the print side of it. But as a radio reporter, when I first got here in the late 80s, I had a chance to watch guys like Terry, uh, Cam Cole, trying to think of a few other guys uh, that, that, well, okay, Maddie is another one, Jim Matheson. Uh, there's a lot of guys that were veteran newspaper reporters, and I watched them and learned from them on how to ask questions. And it wasn't so much, it wasn't so much what to ask, but when to ask it. And so I learned a lot by watching Jonesy, not only the way he performed, and I'll use the word performed, the way he used to perform as as uh, as a professional writer, he was an outstanding writer knew exactly when the story was going to be right. He just seemed to have a a real timing for 
when he released his stories. He knew exactly how far he could go on stuff. Weak need wimps is going to be uh, is going to be one of them. He really did uh, tear the the hockey club apart after the uh, miracle on Manchester in Los Angeles, which was a pivotal pivotal game in Edmonton Oilers history. We can talk all we want about what it did for the Los Angeles Kings. They still talk about the miracle on Manchester. If you don't know yeah. what I'm talking about, Google it. But Jonesy's harsh words and criticism of the hockey club back in the early '80s really did help power the team to the next level. So, you know, and so I, I learned to watch him as a journalist. And then also then after the games, we would all go out on the road. And you know about that, too. He was, uh, he worked hard. He played harder in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm going to miss him. He's still around, thankfully. We can talk and hopefully we'll talk with him at some point about all the great stories. He's covered so much. But I have yep. nothing but the most the most respect for Terry Jones. Not a big fan of how it got handled, but I do know this. I've been around the media business long enough to see a lot of guys go down that road. So I feel for him, but it doesn't diminish how I view him. So that's how I, uh, and uh, tip of the cap, man. I, uh, I have nothing but the utmost respect for Terry. Uh, so I'll leave this to you now to kind of wrap it up with Jonesy. Well, there's so much I could say. I, I had the opportunity um, to write against Jonesy and to write with him. Uh, spending uh, 89 to 2000 at the journal while he was at the sun and then spend, spending 2000 to th 2007 uh, as a teammate writing alongside him. Yeah. Uh, Terry Jones is one of those guys and we use old school and, Kids kind of maybe younger people out there wonder, you know, what that means. It's sometimes it's used as a negative. To me, it's not. Uh, Jonesy knew how to find, he knew a story when he saw it, and oh, he yeah. knew it from a mile away. Uh, and he knew an angle. If he had to find an angle, if it wasn't obvious, there was nobody better at trying to think of something that not everybody else was writing about. I'd get pissed off at him. Uh, writing against him because he was columnists are supposed to pontificate often and they don't do the digging. Uh, Jonesy also did the digging. So when he had the contacts, he would break more stories than any columnist Yeah, because columnists just don't break stories. Generally, Danny Barnes did a little bit too, but um, I respected that even when, if he was beating my brains in, because you would get the call in, you'd get the, wave into the office and it was essentially the sports editor saying so i read all about this brand new fill in the blank here that's going to be happening in edmonton problem is i read it in the other newspaper so can you tell me why that's the case <laughs> because and you were often staring at a terry jones oh, article yeah. Yeah. about this or that happening and back then it wasn't like twitter days where everybody's in on the story within 10 minutes and it kind of gets lost. You were, when you were beat, you were beat for the day. That's right. It sat in front of you. It was in hard copy on the porch or in the newspaper boxes and you, you were wearing it. Um, the other thing, Brent, going to the sun with him, um, I gained a lot of respect for Terry uh, and it started in 06 in that last Stanley cup run. I thought, Oh shit. Oh, great. It's only going to be me and Jonesy. And the journal was sending three people. He's going to do the, 
I'm the columnist. You go do all the grunt stuff, beat guy. I'm going to be here crafting my column. Right. Well, no. Jonesy busted his ass, and he wasn't a young man then in 06. And he, it was, it was wonderful to see him work, and it was wonderful after the work was done and the stories were filed to go uh, and have a drink or have a meal. He did it on the road. He did it even when he was out of his element. You know what? Jonesy could just show up. And I don't want to go on too long, but I've got to mention this. And I think I might have mentioned it before. Spring training, Papago Park, Arizona. It's it's 95 degrees. It was a new training facility. The Trappers are now with the Oakland A's after being with the Florida Marlins and before that for the longest time, obviously, um, the California Angels and with some White Sox thrown in. I'm looking... Jonesy came in at the wrong end of the parking lot. So he had to literally walk a quarter of a mile to get where he could have walked 20 feet to get to had he taken the proper entrance. Right. So, you know, a scene out of like a Clint East, a spaghetti Western, like High Plains Drifter, where through the heat waves on the horizon, you yeah. can see the lone guy on the horse walking towards you. That was him. Well, he said he was walking. This was Terry Jones in his black short sleeve shirt and black dress pants, uh, carrying a bag with his computer in it. And let's be honest, being a being large as he was known, that walk took a long time. And I was worried that he was going to finish the walk uh, before going down in a slump in the heat, but he didn't. But I just remember that scene. It's like, Jonesy never makes a misstep when it comes to finding a story, but I tell you what, did he pick the wrong entrance to the facility that day? But you know what? You're right. The time comes. Yeah. I don't like how it was done. Nobody does. And it happens too often. And you know what? It may be a corporate decision. And it was in Toronto. It's okay for Toronto, we're doing this, we're the hatchet guys, we're the bad guys, to make a call to an editor out here where, you know, where Jonesy does occasionally go into the building. And if he doesn't, you know what you do? You say, Jonesy, we need you to come in. He would probably know what's happening at that point if he says, oh, why, just give it to me on the phone. Uh, a little, Just a little more than a, than a turn in your stuff, you're done uh, call after... 55 years now i feel the same way uh you know about our friend brand Dwayne mandrusiak 49 years yeah with the football club you can make an argument hey good long run nothing to be ashamed about it's time and you know what maybe it is i don't know but i think the guy in that position needs to be treated a little bit better that's i'll leave it at that and let's leave it at that when we come back next week, we'll talk about the Edmonton Elks, who were off to a sluggish start. But I wouldn't be too concerned if I was an Elks fan. Calgary Stampeders keep finding ways to win. We'll talk about all that coming up here. Talk a little football and a little more hockey next week. Robin, thanks for your time. We'll talk to you next week. All right, man. Storm in the castle. Road 55.